right. Welcome back to A Minor Detail. My name is Ryan Miner. I'm your host. We're here every Sunday night at, you guessed it, 9 o'clock. And we're live. And today we have a fantastic interview that was pre-recorded earlier today with Baltimore Sun veteran reporter Michael Dresser. And Mike and I talked about Maryland politics, and we talked about his career as a journalist. And Mike's been at the Baltimore Sun for, man, longer than I've been alive. And we're, we talked about Baltimore County politics, who's running for the executive race, as well as the eight Democrats running for governor. And we talked a little bit about Larry Hogan and his path to victory. So with no further ado, Michael Dresser, Baltimore Sun reporter. I have the distinct pleasure this morning to have with me Baltimore Sun reporter Michael Dresser. Mike, Mike, welcome to the show. Glad you could join us for the first time. Glad to be with you, Ryan. You're a busy man these days at the Baltimore Sun. I've been following your your journalism for some time, and you've been a reporter for, gosh, how long has it been? Well, uh, I've been with the Sun for 42 years, and of that, uh, about 27 of them as a reporter. Wow. What did, before you became a reporter at The Sun, what, was, uh, what did you do? I was a copy editor, editing uh, stories and writing headlines, and uh, then I became an assistant business editor and uh, eventually moved into business reporting and then from there into state government reporting. Wow. Wow. Um, are you a lifelong Marylander? No, I was born in the Chicago area. But, oh, okay. Uh, I've been in Maryland since uh, 1976. Wow, okay. So That was your, the, the bicentennial birthday cake, if any of your uh, readers remember that. <laughs> and it was the year that uh, Jimmy Carter was first elected. Yes, indeed. And yeah. uh, when I came to Maryland, uh, my introduction to Maryland politics was... Uh, we had a governor under indictment. Was that um, Agnew? Marvin Mandel. Oh, Marvin Mandel, and who just recently passed away. Yes, in fact, uh, he passed away about uh, two years ago, and uh, I uh, co-wrote his obituary. Wow. Was he, he was one of the last Republican governors in that 40-year span, is that right? No, uh, Marvin Mandel was uh, kind of an old-fashioned uh, Democrat uh, out of the uh, Baltimore political machine. Oh, kind of like uh, William Donald Schaefer. Yeah, they were kind of ideological uh, uh, allies and uh, actually very friendly. What um, You know what? I, I don't remember the circumstances surrounding Marvin Mandel's indictment. What happened there? Oh, the details are a little hazy, but it involved uh, a racetrack down in uh, southern Maryland uh, and uh, kind of uh, getting some uh, favorable racing laws uh, passed for his friends. Uh, It was a a very convoluted thing where he uh, vetoed a bill he actually wanted favored, but kind of let the legislature uh, override him when they never overrode him on anything else uh it was very involved and had a had a cast of uh characters uh 
uh, right out of a Jimmy Breslin uh, novel, and uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, that was uh, that was from uh, the uh, the heyday of uh, of uh, corruption in Maryland politics. Wow. Well, you know, Mike, I've been following your journalism and your writing at the Sun for a long time, um, and I can tell you that um, you are a one of those old school reporters that what is what is the old dragnet saying just the facts ma'am and uh i've been i've been so impressed and as as someone that is aspiring to to get into uh to become a to, to become a more well-rounded journalist i'm a blogger i i admit that i understand that i take an opinion at times and there there's a blurry line between that but i try my best on a minor detail to put out actual real journalism um, as an alternative to some of the stories that are appearing in some of the major newspapers between the sun, between the, the post. And, you know, I see you guys as the pioneers in the industry and I, well, I'm interested. We're, we're, don't, don't sit down yourself. I think that, uh, that uh, I've followed your blog and your coverage, particularly of a uh, Western mo- Maryland politics, and you're uh, filling a, a niche that I think is, uh, you know, gone unfilled some of the time. Uh, and I think that a lot of your work is very competitive with the Herald Mail or the Frederick News Post. Well, that's certainly the the goal, and to to at least have the conversation. Some of the stories that go unreported by the newspapers, I try to pick up and fill in the gap. Um, and I know that. Uh, I've worked with the Herald Mail um, by at least being part of their stories or they have reached out for comment. They started to acknowledge that I'm a Maryland blogger instead of a, a former Washington County resident, which is nice. So it's um, yeah, it's been a journey for me as well when I started doing this back in 2015. And look, I'm a self-taught guy and I'm learning as I go and reading as much as I can um, about style and about um, what constitutes journalism, getting my sources together, um, working those sources and maintaining uh, my relationships. So I, um, journalism is, I think, at its peak at this time in our country's history. And when you first started in the industry, Mike, and how, how, how have you seen the journalism, the the profession evolved from when you began to where we are now today? Well, I think one of the uh one of the uh distinct differences is that uh it is um, much more uh of uh you know an even mix of men and women and having women's perspective on Political issues, uh, I think, enriches our coverage, uh, gives us, uh, makes us less of an old boys network. Now, I certainly am one of the old boys, but, you know, we're evolving somewhat. But uh, there is, I I think, uh, you know, we've had to become more uh, attuned to immediacy because, we're not just putting out a print product anymore. You know, we have to work faster and close to the web and update stories several times a day. Uh, you know, it's become a, you know, a, a much more kind of demanding pace. 
So yeah. those are some of the big differences. And I see newspaper newsrooms, they are they've gone, undergone plenty of changes over the last three or four decades. Newsrooms are downgrading or reducing the number of reporters and which creates a <laughs> I guess the the assignment editors have Plenty more to assign to you know only a select few reporters, and you know one newspaper I won't say which, but one newspaper just eliminated their entire photojournalism department, and now they are requiring their reporters to use their smartphones to take photographs, and that's a big hit. Um, the industry is 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 suffering because everything has been turned into digital readership. Um, and do you see the Baltimore Sun? Do you have a healthy mix between print subscription versus the digital side? I think it's a healthy mix now. I think that uh, that uh, print is stabilized. Uh, I don't think it's ever going to go back to where it was in the uh, 1980s and 1990s. Uh, and the... Uh, the, we're going to have increasing uh, dependence on uh, different skill sets. And uh, uh, at the same time, I'm very happy that the sun has not gone the route of, uh, of eliminating the photo staff. We downsized considerably in 2009, and that was very uh, traumatic for everybody because we lost some wonderful photographers. But the fact of the matter is that the size of the paper uh, is smaller. Uh, and these days, uh, yes, I do take pictures uh, on my smartphone and I send them in. And I do take video uh, and uh, we'll post it on, the, on, on our webpage. But when we have uh, a high-profile story or one that really recalls, we're real photographic skill is required, we still have a professional do that. You know, as a veteran reporter at the Baltimore Sun, Mike, what area specifically do you cover mostly? Is it politics? Is it business? Or is it some of the more Baltimore City stories? What's your What's your niche? My niche is uh, Maryland state government and politics. So okay. uh, I'm posted uh, out of Annapolis as my, as my uh as my main workstation uh, during the uh, legislative session, uh, I'm pretty much full time. And also, uh, you know, when the legislature is not in session or we don't have an election on, I get a chance to uh, do some enterprise stories from around the state. And I do enjoy that. Yeah. So, you know, I look at the newspapers that provide some of the most the best coverage and uh, around the state, the Sun being the very top and then the Washington Post. And I look at the Capitol Gazette, my friend Brian Sears over there, he does a great job. Um, and then you have the local newspapers uh, where I come from in Western Maryland, we have the Cumberland Times News and then the Herald Mail, the Frederick News Post, and then the Carroll County has their own newspaper based in Westminster. Um, I'm not sure what's beyond 
um, Baltimore County or North. I don't know if the Cecil, if Cecil County has their own newspaper or if Hartford County has their own newspaper. I'm just not yes, sure. Uh, uh, the uh, Hartford County has the Aegis. Cecil County has the Whig. Uh, mm-hmm. And, of course, you have uh, some, uh, some strong local papers on the eastern shore. Yes, yeah. And, you know, of course, the biggie, I <laughs> I read a lot of the Kim and I read a lot of the the Baltimore news. She grew up in Reisterstown, so she she her primary newspaper that she still reads is the the Sun. And I I of course I have a we both have a subscription to the Sun as well as the uh, I get the Herald Mail and the Washington Post, and I read the New York Times every day as well as the the Wall Street Journal for different perspective. But uh, you know I'm I'm my my shtick here on the local circuit is Maryland news and politics, and that's yours. And I think we share a mutual appreciation for state government and um i wish wish i could do this full-time like you and one of these days i might but uh for now that's why i bring in folks like you who are just complete consummate experts on all things maryland politics so you know what is what's happening um this year and i think that's a generic question in that there's a lot happening with uh with baltimore county with the governor's race uh, here in Montgomery County, where I live now, we have a county executive race and a council race. But, Mike, I'm interested to to learn more about what's happening in Baltimore County, which you cover that uh, pretty closely and follow their politics. They have a council race and a county executive race because Kevin Kamenitz is term limited. He served two terms, and he's on the, the back end of his last term in, in his seventh year, I believe. And he is running for governor. So, Mike, what's happening with the county executive race? Who are the candidates? Who are the Democrats? Who are the Republicans? And what are some of the issues that these executive candidates are discussing? Well, you have three uh, Democratic candidates right now. Uh, Vicki Almond, who is a uh, sitting councilwoman. You have uh, uh, John Olczewski, Jr., uh, who uh, was a state delegate but got defeated running for the state senate in 2014. Uh, and you have Jim Brochin, who's a state senator. Uh, of the three, you would probably have to say that Almond represents the most continuity. Uh, and uh, uh, jo- uh, Johnny O is kind of running, uh, I think, a bit to uh, her left, is uh, kind of a, an anomalous uh progressive Democrat from Dundalk, uh, and Jim Brochin is uh, uh, running very much uh, an anti-establishment, anti-developer uh, campaign. Hmm. So I know that Vicki, she right. is on from... Republic, yeah, and on the yeah, Republican side, you have uh, uh, Al Redmer, who is the state insurance commissioner, uh, and he's the candidate who would very much be backed by Larry Hogan. And you have uh, Pat McDonough, who is uh, probably uh, be flattered to be called the Donald Trump of Baltimore County. Uh, he is uh, a radio talk show host and, uh, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, uh, suspicious of immigrants and uh, tends to uh, make inflammatory statements and, uh, he would be kind of the anti-establishment candidate on the Republican side. Oh, that's interesting. I know that 
Pat McDonough is a current state delegate in District 7. That includes Kathy Shalega, Rick Impolaria, and there's one other person. Oh, and, yeah. That's right. Yep. So that's so Pat McDonough. Yes, we talk about Pat McDonough. He is not getting the endorsement of Larry Hogan. In fact, Larry Hogan came out and did a mega um, endorsement, so so we speak, of of Al Redmer, who's been in who's been involved with state politics for quite some time as the insurance commissioner. I think he served in that position prior to that before. And uh, he was under Ehrlich, and he's he was also. Uh, the, uh, uh, I believe, minority leader in the uh, House of Delegates. Uh, he's had a long career. He's uh, uh, well-liked on both sides of the aisle. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's very much the uh, hope of the Republican establishment. Hmm. So what is the, the Trump vibe in Baltimore County? Is there a strong lightning the rod approach to politics from the anti-establishment Republicans. Does Pat McDonough have a, a real base? Could he upset the establishment Republican in this county executive race? Well, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of this will be determined by uh, uh, feelings about uh, Donald Trump. Uh, you know, if uh, uh, you have uh, – Strong Trump base, you know, uh, outpouring in uh, in the county uh, could help McDonough. But I think that there's a strong feeling among in the party, you know, among party elders and experienced people that that this could be a very winnable race if uh, you know they don't put out up a candidate who's seen as extreme. And certainly nobody would consider. Al Redmer to be extreme. Uh, you know, it, they 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 very nearly uh, won their county executive race in 2014 with a severely underfinanced, little-known candidate. So uh, I think there is a thought among Republicans at this time if they can nominate the right person. Hmm. Well, I know that Pat McDonough has had a has had, had an interesting career. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, making some inflammatory statements, and you know, Pat McDonough is seemingly unafraid to lob the bombs, the political right-wing bombs at uh, at people. Nevertheless, Mike, he continues to be reelected in District Seven. Uh, apparently, he has a strong base somewhere. Well, you know, I think that there is uh, kind of a strong. Pro-Trump uh, uh, contingent in the East County, uh, which is uh, still, uh, you know, heavily uh, white working class, and uh, you know, at the same time, the you know, the West County is probably increasingly liberal, uh, and uh, with the, uh, the the North County. You know, it's, it's kind of a generalization, but the North County tending to be more fiscally conservative, uh, socially liberal. Uh, and uh, you know, that's why a Democrat like Jim Brochin could survive there for several times. Yeah. And Jim, Jim Brochin's another interesting choice. He, um, 
one of the main one of the the key pieces of legislation that Brochin has sponsored is he was anti speed cameras, and most of the Democrats that I know in Baltimore County and elsewhere around the state, especially here in Montgomery County, are very pro speed camera revenue. But Brochin went on a limb and took a a, a tough position against speed cameras. Did he did Brochin get any blowback from that, Mike? I think that it was probably a pretty uh, popular position for his district. So, uh, you know, I I think you have to credit uh, Jim with being a fighter on that, but uh, I don't think it was a hugely politically risky uh, position to take. Um, let's talk about let's talk about Vicky Amin just a bit, and she's under fire from some of her Democratic opponents. And they're saying that she is tied closely in with the county's developers. In fact, so much so she had a kickoff on developer property. Is that a fair criticism? I think it's one she better get used to. Uh, you know, I think that uh, you know part of it is that uh, as a councilwoman, she would be react, you know, be interacting with developers uh, in a way that uh, her opponents have not. Uh, They've been uh, uh, members of the General Assembly uh, and uh, haven't had the relationships with the development community. I think that she can count on being well-financed, but with that, she'll also have to deserve some criticism. Yeah, I know that uh, Jim Brochin has um, been critical of her and he has said that he's attempting to, or wants to rather, in the uh, the county's pay for play culture, where developers are giving campaign contributions to the county officials. Mike, do you know how many contributions Vicky has received? Vicky Allman has received from developers. How much money that's amounted to? No, I, I think we'll we'll get a uh, sense of that in January when the. Uh, campaign finance reports are uh, filed, but, you know, typically uh, a sitting council person running for county executive, unless they've been, you know, uh, you know, way out of the box in opposing development, uh, are going to do pretty well. Uh, and that isn't just Baltimore County, that's pretty much every county in Maryland. Do you think that Almond has an advantage being that Baltimore County to date, has never elected a female county executive. Is that going to work in her favor? It's hard to say how that will cut. I'm sure that that will uh, will bring her some backing. Uh, but I, I think that you know we've seen on the national scale that the uh, first woman factor can be uh, uh, not such a positive. Well, it's it, it, that's a it's an element in this race, but you mentioned another candidate, a former state delegate um, who was a Dundalk Democrat. What is Johnny? And I may mispronounce his last name, so can you help me out with Olcheski. delegate Johnny Olcheski. Okay, what is um, what's his background, and is he is he raising money? Does he is he seen as the outsider's choice and what is um, what's his backstory? 
Well, he was uh, uh, he's the son of uh, a longtime councilman, uh, Johnny Olchevsky Sr., uh, who represented the Dundalk area for many years. And uh, he was uh, the father was one of the kind of conservative uh, old guard uh, there. And uh, uh, in uh, 2014, when uh, Norm Stone retired from the Senate after 15 years, uh, the Democrats saw Johnny Jr. as the uh, natural successor. Uh, Johnny Jr. is uh, kind of treaded a more liberal path than his uh, his father uh, or Norman Stone, and uh, 2014 proved to be a bad year for Democrats in uh, the sixth uh, district, uh, which is Dundalk Essex area. Uh, it was a total blowout for the Republicans. Larry Hogan took some uh, some precincts by 80 uh, percent. The district went from uh, all uh, Democratic uh, in the legislature to uh, all Republican, uh, and uh, you got uh, a Republican councilman. Uh, so that was uh, kind of the epicenter of the Hogan tsunami uh, in uh, Maryland that year. Are are you surprised that David Marks has opted to? I we presume he's running for council again. Is that correct? I believe he is. Uh, Baltimore County isn't, you know, where I cover as a full time uh, beat, but uh, I, I'm certainly heard, haven't heard that he plans to retire. Hmm. Um, I I was yeah, David Marks seems to be a, a very pragmatic, middle of the road. I hate using the word moderate, um, but he seems like a moderate. Uh, he seems like a moderate voice on the council. Um, I know David Marks pretty well, and he seems to be very well liked. And he approaches county policy um, without any hard ideological lens. And I think he does what is best for his constituents. Are you surprised to see that he's not running for executive? Uh, from what I know of him, uh, which. Is not that much, but for what I hear from my colleagues, uh, not really. Okay. Uh, what are some of these issues that are dominating the council and the executive race? What are the candidates going to touch on and use as their bullet points when bringing their message to voters? Well, I think that uh, that you have a, for a, a pretty prosperous county and – uh, that it, it has not had, you know, any kind of uh, you know, flagrant uh, economic problems. So I think, you know, Almond can run on a certainly, you know, kind of continuity in state. And uh, apart from that, I, I think that you're, you're going to see, you know, development being – you know, the, the crux of the issue, uh, you know, and, you know, there's always been a certain amount of kind of question about, 
how cozy the relationships are, particularly you have some big contributors like the partners in Caves Valley. And, uh, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, at least for at least the, the Democratic primary is going to be very much, I think, dominated by the development issue. Hmm. Wow. So let's move on from Baltimore to state politics, something that you are well invested in and understand quite well. And the race seems to be uh, on the Democratic side, or that's where the tension is focused in state politics, that we have eight Democratic candidates who are running to take on Larry Hogan, who is a pretty popular Republican governor. In fact, there was a recent poll this past last week that said that Hogan is remaining steady. Now, he's he's dropped a few points here and there, but overall, Maryland voters seem to be uh, approval. Or they, they seem to approve of his performance so far as governor. Now, of course, that can change. Uh, we saw what happened to to Bobby Ehrlich when he ran in 2006, um, and that was a very strong Democratic year. In fact, the the House changed over the, the House of Representatives, the Senate, and it was a it was a tough year for. Um, for Republicans all over the place, and given what it has was, happened, but, but it was. But he was still the only, I believe, the only Republican uh, incumbent governor who uh, got knocked off. And you know, part of that is simply, you know, that that he had, uh, you know, uh, you know, a top tier uh, opponent, uh, and uh, you know, uh, Ehrlich, uh, you know, made some mistakes. Uh, himself, and uh, he uh, and and you know it it was the the big difference between this year and that year is that this year you have uh, eight candidates in the Democratic side, and you know none of them is dominates the landscape the way O'Malley did in two thousand six, right? Even against and when, of course, you remember when uh, Montgomery County's former county executive, Doug Duncan, people looked at Doug Duncan to say, this is this is going to be our guy. But it turned out that that wasn't so. A lot of people thought Doug Duncan was going to was going to take it away. Well, you know, Doug had, uh, you know, quite a bit of stature, too, and, you know, was thought that that year was going to be a bad royal for the Democratic nomination, which, you know, fizzled when, you know, uh, Doug uh, dropped out for health reasons, but uh, you know this year, uh, you know the uh, you know there's there's the Democrats don't seem to have you know somebody in the race who is as formidable as either a Duncan or uh, an O'Malley as of 2006. You know I think you have pretty high profile guys who are maybe well-known in their own backyards uh, in Russia and Baker and uh, Kevin Kamenetz. Uh, I don't think anybody in Prince George's County knows who Kevin Kamenetz is, and I don't think anybody in Baltimore County knows who Russia and Baker is. So it's a regional kind of candidacy that we're happening here that some of these big 
uh, counties. I mean, look, Baltimore – is Baltimore County – is it the third largest county in the state of Maryland? Yes. Okay. And I think it goes Montgomery, Prince George's, and then Baltimore. So um, from each of the counties, we have one dominant political figure. And Baltimore County, there is uh, a two-term county executive, Kevin Kamenitz, and in Prince George's County – uh, you have a two-term county executive, uh, Rashawn Baker, and then here in Montgomery County, um, there's a couple of candidates, but it seems that the dominant candidate is the down-county candidate, Rich Madalino. He is the state senator who is the budget wonk, has a lot of experience in Annapolis, a former staffer, so that dominates – those three big counties, and then also in Montgomery County, there is um, Krishante Vignaraja in Baltimore City. You have Dr. Uh, Maya Rockamore Cummings, who is the spouse to Congressman Elijah Cummings. And then you have Jim um, uh, Shea, who is a uh, from, from the venerable law firm, well-known law firm in, up in Baltimore County. Then we have Alec Ross in Baltimore City is a tech entrepreneur, worked for the State Department, worked under President Obama and Secretary Clinton. And who else am I missing? Did I name everybody? Ben Jealous, former national NAACP president. Who I believe is a resident of Anne Arundel County. I think he's from Baltimore, but uh, I'd have to check. (laughs) Okay. His his he does not, you know, his reputation is national, uh, not uh, regional. But kind of the 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 conundrum of the jealous campaign is that, uh, you know, his 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 constituency has been national. He has to try to translate it to the state based level. Uh, everybody else is trying to. To translate either regional success or business success into uh, you know uh, an argument for why they should be named become governor, Uh, you know I think that uh, I think we're going to see a winnowing out process uh, with the first uh, campaign finance reports coming up in January. Uh, It's kind of money primary. At that point, I think that those of us covering the race can make some passive judgments that um, which candidates deserve more attention and which are going to be a bit on the frenzy side. If somebody comes in there and has raised very little money and they don't have much name recognition, you know, it's going to be... First of all, they're going to have a hard time recruiting a lieutenant government candidate. Yeah. Uh, that's that's one of the things that kind of weeds out, you know, uh, candidates in Maryland because you have to convince somebody that you have enough of a plausible chance to be elected that they will do the work and take the risks of putting their name on the ballot with you. And, uh, you know, if, if you come in and you just raise a couple hundred thousand dollars, that isn't going to cut it. Uh, 
you're just not going to find a credible one you make. And the, the, the press isn't going to pay as much attention to you as the people who are obviously are fans. I mean, that's just the way of the world. So I would not be surprised after January if you saw a few of those candidacies uh, go away. Uh, some, some of these the folks who have filed for governor may decide that, uh, you know, they would run as somebody else's lieutenant governor. I mean, I can yeah. see pairings just within that group of eight. So, uh, you know, we'll be watching a lot for uh, who can raise money. Looking at the race now and of the candidate pool, is there a candidate that has the ability to bring in lots of money all over the state, but and, and not only that, can they tap into a network on the national level? Is that Rashern Baker? Is it Ben Jealous? Or is it Caminance or maybe Crescente or Alec? I I don't know. I don't know if there is they if there's a real front runner in this race. I mean they say that um Ken Executive Baker has the most name recognition and if you know, maybe the race were held tomorrow, he would he he, he might win um, on the Democratic side. But is there? I I have no feeling for how this is going to really turn out. And I think you're right, Mike. I think when we look at campaign finance, some of these candidates are going to see the writing on the wall that it might be time to get out, or they might decide that they're going to drop some other personal wealth into the race to to change the dynamics. So well, I. I see that. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, there's some, you know, uh, Jim Shea uh, has potential to uh, raise a lot of money based on his uh, his long career as uh, as an attorney and as head of the Venable firm. He certainly will have a network of uh, friends and supporters there. Uh, gives him. Uh, a good, uh, you know, possibility in that area. Uh, I think that Ben Jealous certainly has national connections, progressive groups uh, around the country that uh, uh, that are, you know, know him and I feel comfortable with uh, backing him. And he has the Bernie Sanders uh, endorsement. Uh, I think that uh, you know, with uh, Maya Rocky Moore Cummings. We have to see if uh, you know Elijah Cummings, considerable national uh, uh, support structure, comes to her aid. Uh, Rich Madalino uh, is uh, getting the support of national groups, uh, you know, that uh, support uh, election of gay and lesbian candidates. Uh, so. You know, there's there's a lot to learn here about where uh, you know these folks may have hidden resources. Uh, you know, it's uh, uh, and that's why that those those reports are going to be so well examined. And the question is growing. I'll, I'll tell you what my my question for anybody in Maryland politics who is following it, writing about it involved in it is 
you have major areas where candidates are virtually still unknown. Western Maryland, where I grew up in, I guarantee you, if you walk down the street in the, in the city of Hagerstown, and let's say you stopped at one of your favorite restaurants, Mike, the Schmeckelstube, um, on the corner of <laughs> uh, Potomac Street and Antietam, and I remember you, you, you visited up in Hagerstown one time and stopped at the, the most famous German restaurant in Hagerstown. We'll throw in, we'll throw in, in, a, in a free plug for Schmeckelstube. Yes. I would yes, we will. try to go there when I'm in Hagerstown. So. Yep. I, I know it well and enjoyed many great meals there, and as well as in most of downtown Hagerstown. I grew up in, in the city of Hagerstown, born and raised. So um, if you were right on the corner there and you were walking out and you asked 10 people who were passing by, um, uh, who are the eight Democratic candidates, I would be surprised if they could name but one or two. And if you go up to Cumberland or Garrett County, and if you happen to, to be at one of the local restaurants or get-togethers, bars up around Deep Creek Lake or in Oakland and maybe in downtown in the city of Cumberland, I think you would have that same issue. And let's go on to the eastern shore. If you were in Ocean City or you walked up to Salisbury and went over to Kent or Caroline County or Queen Anne's or um, and one of my favorite places uh, in St. Michael's and Tilmington Island, I, I think that you're going to have the same issue. You're going to list off a name, a can list off some of these candidates, and people will have just no idea who you're talking about. But you know okay. who they will know, Mike? They will know the name Larry Hogan. That's true. Some of the places you name, you're going to walk down the street, talk to 10 people, you're going to have a hard time finding a Democrat, you know, unless <laughs> one who knows all the candidates. So, uh, uh, but the you know, truth is, though, that still the concentration of uh, population is uh, in the uh, Baltimore and uh, Washington metropolitan areas. So, yeah. uh, you know, it's, uh, but it, it does not hurt Hogan at all that he starts out with uh, uh, just overwhelming support in the state's rural areas. If you put on your your analyst hat today on this interview, looking at looking at Governor Hogan's position now, he's in a good spot. He is he's popular now. I know that every turn the Democrats are hitting him with education, transportation, you name it. The Democrats, you know, I heard Kevin Kamenetz say at uh, a forum in Germantown at the Montgomery College that Larry Hogan hasn't done anything for Western Maryland, or Larry Hogan is hasn't done really anything at all. And I think voters might take a different perspective in that. In fact, Larry Hogan has positioned himself um, as not an ideological governor, but rather someone who governs from the middle, who has made some tough choices. He supported the fracking ban that actually upset some of his Republican friends, um, up in Western Maryland, he has been a moderate governor in all senses. He signed a, a major piece of legislation, the Justice, Re the Justice Reinvestment Act, that looks at how we can approach criminal justice reform. I was disappointed that he didn't sign the civil asset forfeiture bill, but um, and Democrats are going to try to 
say that the paid sick leave bill that he failed to sign um, is a major sticking point, but the governor did say that he wants to sign a paid sick leave bill. He just didn't agree with the uh, the the terms that the Democrats had sent. Um, but looking at this next election cycle, uh, or this upcoming election cycle, rather, Mike, and the Annapolis session, could the upcoming session in Annapolis in 2018, could this change the dynamics of the governor's race in any substantial way? I doubt it will. I mean, you've had three sessions so far, and the sessions aren't going to change the dynamic. The 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 big X factor, you know, for Hogan is uh, Trump, and how uh, you know how you know people in Maryland feel about Trump uh, in 2018, and whether it makes uh, he makes them want to punish Republicans all the way down the ballot. Uh, I think that, you know, Hogan's chances of riding out an anti-Trump wave are still good, but, you know, it's certainly likely to hold him down as far as the percentage of the vote he gets. Uh, It does not mean a conducive atmosphere for Republicans. And I think one of the big questions will be, uh, can the Republicans you know, make legislative gains in the face of what is likely to be a very poor national uh, uh, climate for uh, their party. Uh, the, the big ambition of Hogan and the Republican Party in 2018 is not just to reelect him, but also to wipe out the Democratic supermajority in the uh, uh, House and Senate, so that uh, they can't override his vetoes anymore, and that uh, in the Senate they can uh, the Republicans can sustain a filibuster. Uh, you know, if if Hillary Clinton had been elected, uh, their chances of uh, achieving that goal would be excellent. With Donald Trump as president, uh, that becomes much more iffy. Well, that's what I said to. Uh, my Republican friends, and I can tell you that I said, you know, the best thing that would have happened for Larry Hogan is electing a Democrat, is electing a Democrat president, and Hillary Clinton would have become the the best thing for Larry Hogan. You have two years under a Clinton administration. Who knows what would have happened? We, we could guess, and we just don't know. But um, you know, typically, the incumbent party loses seats in their first midterm elections on the national side, and that's been um, and, and that's been typical for many years past. So, I happen to think that um, the governor would have benefited more from a Hillary Clinton presidency, but he's taking heat from both sides. The Republicans are in Maryland are a frisky bunch, and they are saying, "Well." Hogan and I can I can tell you with a degree of certainty, uh, especially in Washington County, um, I had a friend who is recent who is running for state delegate, and this person went before a central committee up in Western Maryland, and they the central committee members are very pro Trump, and they said we 
are looking for somebody else who can challenge Hogan in the primary that is more conservative, that is pro-Trump. And they told the person who went before the Central Committee who is running for state delegate that Larry Hogan is a sellout. He's a liberal, that he has just basically given in his Republican card. So Republicans are somewhat actively searching for a an alternative to Larry Hogan. Now, they are not going to find it, I happen to believe, and I think that anybody who runs against Larry Hogan will have virtually limited expenses unless they are self-financing um, and they're wealthy. But if if they do that, and let's just say they would knock out Larry Hogan in the primary, which is a very unlikely scenario, but wouldn't that be the Democrats' best thing, that knocking out Larry Hogan and running against a Trumpian candidate? They'd be opening the champagne bottles, but it isn't going to happen. For one thing, exactly. So, you know, uh, I, I think you, you have a different perspective, you know, seeing, you know, with, you know, hearing from people on the Republican Senate committees in the rural counties. But I can tell you, among elected Republicans in, uh, uh, in Annapolis, uh, you know the senators and delegates. You know they're they're all behind Larry. You know they're very happy with him, and uh, uh, you know and the the Trump. You know it does not seem that that Hogan is you know losing any electoral support for distancing himself from Trump. Uh, you know it. You know, there are Republicans who grumble about it. They still they're they're still going to vote for Hogan. He knows that and they know that. So I mean the extent you're hearing that you know, some of that I think that's just kind of low level noise. That's that's good for the Republicans and but the question is if if Democrats come out much more in favor of the nominee in 2018 versus what they when they came out in 2014 there is a a common theme that the reason why Anthony Brown lost is for two reasons one is that he was a a poor gubernatorial candidate now on paper he was excellent and it's indispu- I think it's somewhat indisputable that he is a he was an excellent candidate just on paper alone. That he was a, a Harvard lawyer, uh, a, a helicopter, you know, an army officer, um, uh, eight two two term lieutenant governor. I mean, the writing was on the wall. In fact, in February of two thousand and and fourteen, most people I heard people calling him Governor Brown when they were out in various locations, and so that didn't turn out well. And the second reason why people say that. Uh, Brown lost is because Democrats didn't show up, and they just did not turn out in places that they needed to turn out. But in 2018, it seems that Democrats are fired up. They are ready. They are engaged and energized, and you see all these different, um, as Jamie Raskin calls them, um, Machiavellian-type groups um, spurring um, and uh, rising up or tokabillion groups, rather. I think that's what Jamie Raskin said. Um, and and they're activated women groups that are that are coming out of the woodwork. Is this going to hurt Hogan against any generic Democrat, or is his popularity, Mike, 
just too insurmountable for Democrats in Maryland to overcome? That's uh, it, it's hard to say at this point. I would say that it it to me the polling now looks good for him. Uh, I think that uh, you know, Demo- you know, there are many Democrats who are very mad about Trump, but don't have any problem with Hogan. Uh, I think that uh, you know he's got you know very solid backing of his own party. You know. A few, you know, you know, uh, notwithstanding a few grumblers about his uh, distance from Trump, uh, he polls well among independents. Uh, so, I mean, I think that you know something bad would have to happen, really. Uh, I think for Hogan to lose, I mean, he would have to sustain some type of reversal beyond just Trump. Something to put him self on the wrong side of an issue. Uh, and so far he's been pretty good about avoiding that. Uh, he is a very disciplined uh, politician uh, and uh, he, he puts out a, a strong, uh, simple narrative. He sticks to it and he relentlessly rams it home. That's what he did in 2014. It wasn't all turnout. It was that, that Larry Hogan had a simple, uh, straightforward narrative, and he sold it relentlessly. And uh, the Brown campaign was kind of wiggling all over the place. It did not seem to have a strong message. So uh, I think that I think that an easy message for Larry Hogan to say in the state of Maryland to voters, taking a message directly to voters with a whomever emerges as this democratic opponent are you better off now than you were four years ago um and he can make a case to say that and democrats can say no 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 education funding isn't where it's supposed to be and we can have a real conversation on the issues i think that larry hogan would probably want to run against someone like a ben jealous that would be a good race i see um, and I'm not saying that's going the way it's going to turn out, but there would be such a clear distinction, uh, Mike. That would be the race that I could see Hogan wanting to run. You know, the national guy versus the local guy that has really done um, some middle of the road uh, things in Maryland as far as policy goes. But um, I, I, I don't see a clear front runner at this time, and I think that's how most Democrats feel. And I've spent a lot of time in Montgomery County politics now, having surrounded myself. I'm here every day, and the the smart money to say the smart money is that Rich Manalino might be a breakout candidate, and the race could come down to Ben Jealous versus Rich Manalino versus Rashern Baker, um, and then you know the the progressives might split the vote, and ultimately the uh, the well-known regional guy like Baker would ultimately emerge as the Democrats' nominee. And I, I hear that scenario all over the place, and I, I don't hear as much about some of the lesser-known candidates, but who knows? They could emerge and they could drop a bunch of money. Like you said, Jim Shea, he has access to significant money. Alec Ross, I know, is personally wealthy, and the others, um, I, I'm, I'm sitting back just like 
everybody else is and wondering, well, gee, what's going to happen? You know, and what are those pivotal moments going to be as foretelling in this race? Will it be the the campaign finance that is released? Will it be the debates? Will it continue to be some of these forums or the networks that they're working and how they're uh, managing their campaigns in Western Maryland and the Eastern Shore? Because I can't tell you at this time who would really take who would which candidate of the bunch would take Western Maryland, which candidate would take the Eastern Shore? And the honest answer is I don't think anybody knows, Mike. I really don't. I think you're right. I think it's, um, uh, it's still pretty wide open on the Democratic side. And uh, um, so, and what is Dr. Cummings? What? Her entrance into the race has been somewhat unique. She got in later than everybody else has. Um, and is she going to yeah, – is is she positioning herself for um, – to be governor or is she positioning herself as a lieutenant governor candidate? Um, another interesting candidate that um, isn't part of the gubernatorial bunch, but the lieutenant governors. Mike, do candidates start slitting up now? Do they wait to after the holidays? Do they see some writing on the wall that they can get some – extra traction? I mean, do they pull a, a Ted Cruz when he felt under the gun and then picked Carly Fiorina to be his running mate? Who knows? What is What do you think could happen there? I mean, are there some viable state delegates and um, you know, individuals around the, the state that are being eyed for the LG spot? Well, you have to... The, the thing about the lieutenant governor spot is that if you hold another state or county office now, you have to give it up to uh, run for lieutenant governor. And so unless you think that you're joining a winning team, you know, you're very unlikely to do that. Uh, You know, last time around, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, Doug Gantzler recruited Jolene Ivey, but, you know, that when Doug lost, that meant that Jolene, uh, who was a very popular legislator and no doubt would have been reelected, you know, ended up uh, on, on the bench. Uh, you know, so where I would look for people to be recruiting uh, lieutenant governor candidates are uh, Baltimore City Council uh, because they uh, – they they run on the presidential year cycle, and they have some pretty uh, impressive up and coming people on the council now, uh, who can bring some balance to a number of the tickets. So uh, you know, I would be uh, definitely looking there. That's an interesting observation. Um, what about now? Is the Baltimore City State's Attorney uh, Marilyn? Help me with her last name. Mosby. Is she, is she up for re-election? She'll be up for re-election in 20, okay. uh, 2018 because she's okay. a state official. Uh, and uh, so and I'm sure that she'll get a challenge because uh, uh, her term has been controversial. It's, it certainly has with the Freddie Gray prosecution, and we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, and, you know, the – a lot of state politicos, insiders are looking at Cheryl Kagan in Montgomery County, right around the corner from where I live in District 17, 
uh, well, she's in District 17, but rather I am in District 15, and they're asking, would she be slating up with uh, with a baker? Could it be a, a Baker Kagan? And she's a popular female elected state senator in Maryland with high political aspirations herself. And would that be in the deck of cards? But like you said, she would have to give up a safe seat. And not all legislators are willing to do that, especially when the you have a popular Republican governor and you would be taking a big gamble, just like Jolene Ivey did back in 2014 when she ran with Doug Gansler. So, right. when you, and, and, and you look at the track record of lieutenant governors in Maryland, and you did not see a path from there to being governor. Uh, it hasn't worked so far. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, right now, I mean, Larry Hogan has, like, almost an ideal lieutenant governor candidate. You know, if, uh, or lieutenant governor and Boyd Rutherford, because um, Boyd doesn't really seem to be all that, uh, you know, that that motivated to be the next governor. Now, maybe he's concealing it well, uh, but uh, you know, you know, uh, he seems to enjoy being lieutenant governor just to be lieutenant governor. Uh, sure. Where Anthony clearly signed on. Uh, with O'Malley with the intent that uh, he would be governor someday. So, uh, you know, it's, it is a less uh, attractive uh, uh, you know, prospect, I think, than it was uh, back in 2006. Yeah, I, I agree. And in 20, let's see, 2022 – you're going to see an interesting Republican field, and you can almost name it if you really wanted to. Um, oh, yeah, you have Shu, Kittleman, and Glassman. That, that's exactly what I was going to say. That's exactly correct. And those are the three plus Rutherford. Um, so, and if Rutherford doesn't want to run, I mean, I would see him as being a, a favor given his experience, but he was a lieutenant governor, and the, the, these other, I mean, Shu is. He is obviously running for governor. It doesn't know it, – it, it's not now, but it's going to be not a, a matter of if but when. And Kittleman would seem like a logical choice given that he is the executive of Howard County, and I – well, that's to presume that he wins again and his executive because he has an opponent in Calvin Ball, yeah. um, the Democrat. But I, my understanding is, is that Kittleman is very popular and – in Howard County and should survive re-election. Is that, does that seem correct? Uh, you know, except for the Trump factor, you would, you would say that his chances were excellent. You know, that yeah. Trump factor does cloud everything. And, you know, Calvin is, uh, uh, a more than respectable candidate, uh, for the Democrats to put up. So, you know, I don't think you can, you, you could probably, uh, Say that Allen should be okay, but uh, you know I don't think uh, you can call him a prohibitive favorite at this point. Um, no, I agree. So you know, and just wrapping up, Mike, I I had the opportunity to interview um, State Delegate Corey McRae, who is running in District 45 against. Um, a longtime incumbent, Nathaniel McFadden, and that's a, that's going to be one of those interesting Baltimore City races to to keep your eye on. 
I'm I'm certainly interested. I think that's a fascinating race. Corey McRae has been working hard on building the relationships and to working social media. And overall, he's a nice guy. And I think that he has a a background that relates well to his district. And that might be uh, that might might be uh, one to, to really to focus on and to see how that turns out. Well, I think watch the Baltimore City Senate races uh, generally in uh, uh, 2018. I think there's only one of them that's safe. I mean, you have uh, you have a delegation from the city that uh, you could look at it either as uh, experienced or geriatric, uh, but uh, you have uh, you know in you have uh, one senator who's under indictment, and uh, you know most of the other, others are getting up there in age and have uh, young and aggressive opponents. The only one who feels safe is Bill Ferguson in uh, 46. Apart from that, uh, you know, I think everybody's going to be facing a uh, serious challenge. So keep an eye on Baltimore. Definitely. And Mike, do you at all follow Anne Arundel County politics? Do you write about their political scene? Not closely enough to really, you know. Okay. I was going to say, I don't see Steve Shue having any problems being reelected. And there's going to be a unique race. And the uh, the old Republican Party apparatus is going into overdrive to attack a pretty popular county councilman in Jerry Walker, and they're firing out these attack pieces and juxtaposing his photograph with a a picture of a, an actual clown, and they're, they're hitting him hard, and so that might be an interesting race to watch, too, because he's, Jerry Walker is running for state delegate against um, some popular Republicans, um, but then again, you have Tony McConkie that he is running, uh, that's part of that incumbent um, slate or uh, delegation. And of course, Tony McConkie has had a been censured by the the Maryland House of Delegates and has had been brought up on ethics violations and has had some numerous issues. So that'll be another important race to watch, and to as well as the Dundalk races. So we'll. We'll keep an eye on it all. And Mike, just to follow, uh, to finish up here, um, you're going to be covering Annapolis session beginning in uh, January. Is that correct? That would be my plan. <laughs> yes, God willing, as we they always say. So we'll keep an eye on the Baltimore Sun. And um, I'm telling you, you're a wealth of knowledge. And between you and Lou Peck, who is also one of my favorite journals, I don't know if you know Lou or not, um, from Bethesda Beat, he, uh, you guys are an encyclopedia of Maryland politics, and it's important to have these conversations to keep an eye on what's happening on local and statewide and even at the federal level. So, Mike, Mike Dresser of the Baltimore Sun, I, I appreciate your time here on Sunday morning, and um, we'll stay in touch, and I hope you come back again. Okay. Good luck to you. All right. Thank you, and you take care. Bye-bye. All right. That was Mike Dresser of the Baltimore Sun, veteran reporter. Appreciate Mike joining me this morning. And we have a 
got a lot to talk about in Maryland politics, a lot going on this election year. So stay tuned. We have more great guests coming up. Uh, I think we have a Montgomery County Council candidate who's going to be on the show next week. So stay tuned. Have a have a happy Thanksgiving. Don't uh, don't eat too much. Or if you do eat too much, then I don't know, exercise or whatever. Um, let's see. Don't drink too much. Or if you are drinking, stay at home and uh, take Uber. So a little public service announcement there. All right. Well, everybody, you have a great week. Happy Thanksgiving to you. And thanks, as always, for listening to A Minor Detail. Find us on the web at aminordetail.com. My name is Ryan Miner. I'm your host. Have a great week.